Uh, historical cultural context. So we've worked from uh, we've worked from words to sentences to paragraphs to discourses. So we're layering in uh, help to interpret any given text in the Bible. Uh, tonight we get to historical cultural context. Broadly speaking, we've we're talking and are talking about two different contexts. The first that we've spent however many, five or six weeks on, uh, is the literary context. That's simply how do Bible words and themes and phrases relate to all the other Bible words and themes and phrases. Okay, uh, So stay tuned for Derek's Bible arcing later this year. That will even more help us uh, get at and unpack literary context. And other uh, broad context is tonight, or this evening, historical cultural context. How do all those Bible words and themes and texts and phrases relate to uh, the historical and cultural context of the audience to whom it was written or to whom the story was told? Now, sometimes the text itself might give us some hints. 2 Kings 14.1, for example, in the second year of Joash, Amaziah became king. Well, that's giving us something of a historical context, and that's helpful. Uh, that's our primary historical reference. We want to uh, glean as much from that as we can. And then beyond that, we'll have to, or maybe helped by consulting other resources. There are just some words and metaphors and events and histories and languages and people that the biblical authors and the audiences simply assume. Bible writers write in such a way that they know the audience is going to understand what I'm saying. They're going to understand who I'm referring to. Well, now, thousands of years later, we need some help bridging that gap often. Uh, we need help catching up to those assumptions. One of the most striking ones to me, uh, which it really doesn't matter if it is to me or not, it's a striking one. In, in all of the Gospels, when every Gospel writer gets to the point of Jesus dying, you know what all of them say? They crucified him. That's all that they say. Now, why can they say that? Because they know everybody who reads those words knows exactly what happened to him. Now, we need some help filling out what that means. To them, they hear that, and the author doesn't have to say anything else. For us, I don't, we haven't seen a crucifixion in a long time, so we need some help with what's going on at that event. That's historical cultural context. That makes sense? Here's Duval Hayes. For our interpretation of any biblical text to be valid, it must be consistent with the historical cultural context of that text. I throw a rock and we can talk about any number of examples. In Revelation 9, 7 through 11, John's locusts, they are not Black Hawk Helicopters. Why can't they be that? Because none of John's readers would have, they would have said, a hell of what? I, we don't know what your helicopter, we don't even know what that is. So if it, if, if it wasn't that to them, then it's not that to us. As Pastor Jordan has said, if we don't know what it meant, we don't know what it means. Okay. We want to talk about a variety of uh, sort of... Uh, um, diagram, if you will, or just to look at all the various elements of what goes into historical cultural context, the first of which it would be what? 
what might be the, the first tidbit of information that we want to unpack and get as much and know as much about as we can in any given text. Arguably, the author. And there's some things about the author that would help to know. Sometimes the author lets us in on some of this context, sometimes not. Things like who he is. Is he from the southern kingdom or the northern kingdom? When did he write? Is he, is he a post-exilic prophet or is he a pre-exilic prophet? Is he, is he a post-exilic prophet writing about the exodus, applying it to after the exile? Where, where is he fit? Uh, where is he from? Who are his parents? Etc. When did he write? When did he minister? How long did he do that? This helps to consider, um, especially when we, when we read the prophets. Because we, we sit down and sort of read them and maybe teach through them in a condensed setting. But those guys, you know how long those guys wrote? 40, 50, 60 years. Right? We can kind of read it in a short setting and think, oh, this guy had a revival meeting and he got all this out in a week. No, this is decades often of God's people hearing this message over and over and over again. I made the horrible mistake. Uh, I was pastoring down in Texas. I preached to the minor prophets all, at, all in, in succession. I got to the end of that. That was the worst idea I've ever had. I mean, I've had a lot of bad ideas, and that was among the worst. Because it was just, I don't know how many weeks it was, the same message for 10 months over and over and over again. When these guys had decades of this, layering this in, you see. How long did he write? What's the occasion for writing? From whence did he write? Uh, is he writing uh, from what city to what congregation? From what nation to what nation? Okay, Things like that. That makes sense? Another bit of information we might like to know is the audience, okay? And I'm going to offer here, this is, I'm going to take a little bit of a detour from Duvall Hayes, don't tell Jordan, but I'm going to offer uh, some context of the audience. Because there are, and I'm just making this up, call them whatever you want, but first level audience. These are, these are witnesses to the event in the Bible. These are the people who went through the event, saw the event, heard the prophet. You with me? First level, they were there as eyewitnesses. There's a second level, too, and that's the, that's the recipient of whatever's been written. That may be a whole lot of years later, right? And then there's an extended level. That's 2,000 years or more of extended level. That's all of us that we're now reading on somebody who wrote about an event. Right? Or is reporting a message or a teaching that was heard. Okay? Uh, an example of this, we don't have to go through all of this, is in John 2. Uh, in John 2, Jesus changed the water into wine, and then John abuts that event with him cleansing of the temple. Smart guys fight about whether that's the same cleansing that's at the end of the ministry, or did Jesus have two cleansings of the temple, one at the beginning, one at the end. Either way, the text says Jesus tells the religious leaders, destroy this temple and what? I'll raise it up in three days. And they said, you are out of your mind. It took us forever to build this temple. You think we're gonna, you're going to rebuild this thing in three days. So there were, those, those were eyewitnesses. The disciples were there. They heard him say it. But in John 2.22, what does John say? After what? 
after he was resurrected, they remembered what he said. So there were eyewitnesses who heard Jesus say that and didn't quite get it. After the resurrection, John says, oh, okay, that's what, he was, oh, that's what he's talking about. And I want to tell my readers now, that's what he was talking about. So you got first level, now second level. And now we're reading this, say, after the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So we've sort of got an extended level now. Those are all three aspects of the audience that we ought to consider. Where they are, where they fit in history. That makes sense? What are some other, and I'm just going to throw this out, what are some other areas that you might like to know to fill out an interpretation of a text? There's probably not a wrong answer. Language. Okay. Excellent. Geography. My word, did you read my notes? Because we're going clockwise around what I got here. What else? Where in the ministry the person wrote it. Okay. I mean, you know, like, was it the beginning? Was it sure. The end? Yeah. Was it his last letter? His yep. first letter? Yep. The time like 20 AD or That's right. Time, yeah. 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 Here are some. So language, one of those. We mentioned Daniel last week. It's written in Hebrew and Aramaic. There's a switch. Probably purposeful. Geography and topography. Somebody brought that up. Uh, so Psalm 121. Does anyone have that memorized? Or you probably recognize it if you heard it. Amara, you got that? What's the first part of that? I lift up my hands to the heavens. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven. Yeah. That's part of those uh, Psalms of Ascent. So there's this little section of Psalms right there that sort of document, you can read this, sort of document a pilgrims traveling from their house to Jerusalem. Now between them and Jerusalem, like they don't have interstates, right, with rest stops and uh, buckies. Um, it's very dangerous for them to travel. Like there, there are animals that want to eat them and there are robbers that want to rob them. And so when you're anticipating, I've got to go a long way to Jerusalem, and i got my whole family, we've got this whole caravan, I look to the heavens from where does my help come from? God will see to it that we get there. It, it matters where Jerusalem is. There are psalms of ascent. They're always going up to Jerusalem. Does it, would, it, would it help? Does it matter, for example, that Thessalonica uh, is situated in the shadow of Mount Olympus? Right off the Ignatian Way, Caesar's proud road that unites the Roman Empire under his rule. He can get from one end to the other more quickly, and I have to sail around things. And here is Thessalonica, flourishing gospel converse, uh, congregation, blossoming in the shadow of Mount Olympus, using Caesar's road to do it. Isn't that remarkable? He's the King of Kings, Jesus is, and the Lord of Lords. What about social custom and structures? Um, Greco-Roman household codes, would it help to know something like that? Sure, I, I think so, especially, you know, there's a, uh, a, something of a, a brouhaha going on about whether David raped Bathsheba or not, and that Bathsheba had no responsibility, and was David playing power politics in, his, in, his, uh, in what he did? Well, would it matter to understand... The, the cultural situation of how kings or how David related to women or women's role in that, of course it would. 
Um, of course it would help to know that and not impose then on that text uh, maybe a modern, uh, maybe feminist idea of something like that. Uh, economic cust- uh, conditions. Uh, is the economy good or bad? Is it 8th century Israel where we've got bumper crops and everybody's killing it in the stock market? But they're idolatrous? Or um, is it a bad economy? Who controlled the markets? Who controlled trade routes? Right. Who, who controls trade guilds? This is John's warning in Revelation, isn't it? The, the time will come when because of, he's writing to these churches and, and to us at the church. The, the time will come for them. It's probably coming for us sooner or later where you're not going to be able to get a job very easily. You're going to be shut out of the trade guilds. You can't go down to the local labor hall and get you a job today. Right? Probably helps to know those kinds of things. Political environment. Um, who is in charge, who was in charge, who wants to be in charge, right? Um, you, remember old, um, you remember Herod the Great. Herod was a, you remember what nationality he was? Herod was an Idumean. And those are, that's another word that's a, for the a matured or a word for the Edomites. Where did the Edomites come from? Who? Esau. Where did Jesus come from? Jacob. Lo and behold, here is Esau again trying to get at his brother. Does it matter to know those historical contexts and where a Herod might be from? Of course, it would help. That makes sense? Uh, Duval Hayes offers some caveats that I'm going to summarize. <laughs> Um, and paraphrase, because I need the, I need things like this to help them stick in my brain. Uh, the first one is to uh, is a warning against appearing too smart by half. By that, they mean I'm trying to paraphrase them to mean that that we assume trendy or cute inaccuracies as though they were facts, because they make for good theater. In, our, in teaching or in studying. It, it's easy to, to shade a supposed little factoid to prop up uh, an interpretation. Right? So, don't load up the historical cultural context with sort of assumed insinuations or assumed conjectures as though they were facts, because if they were a fact, it would make the Bible a lot more interesting. We don't need help making the Bible more interesting. Okay, so that's a helpful warning. Okay, um, per- per- perhaps, perhaps the big fish that swallowed Jonah was just the big fish that swallowed Jonah. Right? I mean, have you heard teaching? I, I'm guilty of it. Her teachings say through Jonah, and we go into all this, about what kind of fish this might be. Oh, this could be a such-and-such whale. Well, the text just doesn't lend itself. And the, the emphasis is not, it's on God, in my estimation. I think God created that fish just like he created that plant for that purpose, and the world has never seen that fish again. Right? He appointed that fish. He appointed the plant to uh, grow and wither over Jonah's head. Sometimes the... The camel is just a camel, and the eye of a needle is just an eye of a needle. 
hear a lot of guys try to make a whole lot about there's some sort of gate in the wall of Jerusalem and your camel's got to bend over and you're just you're just, just you're just trying too hard. It doesn't it doesn't add to anything that Jesus is trying to teach. Let it let the text stand as it as it is there. Secondly, uh, I've summarized this as riding all hat and no cattle. Uh, I, I'm the last guy to try to. Uh, vouch for or throw my lot in with cowboys, but what, what, what might that mean? What does riding all hat and no cattle mean? Yeah, you're all tall. You, you look like, but you ain't. Right? Yeah, yeah, you, you look like the big shot, but you, you're not. Yeah, you, but you drive a Toyota Corolla, 84 Corolla. You're not, you know, a cowboy. Um, for example, we we can and, and this is this is tempting. I, I don't know that's. I guess it's always wrong. It's just tempting. Um, ought to be careful that we can psychologize someone in a text, um, insisting on what they must have felt. They, oh, this they must have felt this, or they must have felt that. You sort of you're sort of in, inserting what what I might feel in that situation. Well, if I felt that and we feel that, they most certainly should have felt that. Well, no. Not really. Um, or, or we might read more in between the lines of a parable than we ought. And so we begin to use historical cultural context, mean to kind of shoehorn data in the text that, um, that may not help. The third caveat I've summarized is walking with hidden crutches or using back ground material, historical, cultural, contextual material um, as an ends rather than the means. I mean, you may be great on Jeopardy, but not helpful for brothers and sisters in the church. Um, we want to lead one another further into what actually is in the text, not what might be there or what isn't there, right? Um, and so we don't want to use this stuff to, if, if you're leading others, especially in helping in the Bible. We don't want to use this historical cultural material to prop up what otherwise might be just lazy exegesis. Make sense? It's very tempting once you get into this and give you these details. Oh, man, this is great. Oh, I didn't know that. And all of a sudden, it becomes more about what's not in the Bible than what is in the Bible. Okay? So I think those are helpful uh, warnings that they offer. Um... I do want to take a little bit of, of another detour from Duval Hayes, Don't Tell Jordan, um, and I'm going to offer a couple of metaphors here. <clears throat> Using historical cultural resources, this is Maxwell, you can forget this as soon as you read it. Using historical cultural resources does not unlock the room. It helps furnish the room into which God has gladly welcomed us. Okay? What God has given us is glorious. He, we're in, he's unlocked every door of his glory, right? Amen. He's welcomed us into every room. There, there is nothing outside the Bible that we need to unlock something in the Bible. You with me? Using these kinds of resources simply helps furnish the room. Gives us a few seats to sit on to contemplate. Gives us another place to lay down and meditate, etc. Okay? Um, and so I want to offer this 
a consideration on feeling the weight of this. And I, I use somebody, who just got nervous about that word imagination? It's okay. I used it provocatively. When I impulsively, instinctively threw this together, I had sufficiency and imagination on opposite sides, and that turned into heresy real quick, so I had to rethink uh, that. When we, when we say sufficiency, we mean that God's word is entirely sufficient as it's written, translated to us. It was written by normal people for normal people. Okay? We have what God intended, and he hasn't hidden any necessary truth like he's playing some shell game with us. God hasn't hidden some secret key under the mat. He's unlocked all the rooms. With me? I use the word imagination. I, I, don't, I don't use it to mean, well, if I don't understand the text, I'll just start making stuff up. Uh, however pious we may feel in doing so. What I do mean by that is to give yourself to a holy curiosity. Give yourself to a holy curiosity. God created our imaginations to be redeemed, not rejected. You don't need me to tell you this. If it could be some encouragement to you, so be it. I mean, enjoy exploring the Bible like God invites us to. We, we approach God's word like treasure. We know that, right? And I don't know about you, but my sort of impulsive image of that is us going into a rock cave digging for hidden gold. And that's really not the case at all. When we explore God's word like treasure, we're going into a cave made of gold. And everywhere we scratch and scrape and dig and poke, and pro- we get gold. You with me? Yes, sir. Everywhere you look, we find more gold. That, that's, God lets us into that. Okay? Everywhere we scrape, we get to pocket more treasure. So we start scraping. Using these kinds of resources is, is our effort at scraping. Imagining a world without cars and without pesticides and without interstates, without cars. I remember sitting with uh, someone we'd all consider a hero. Um, he was doing a thing on Revelation and asked him that, especially, especially that book and letter, that John is writing, he's, he's not inviting us to a bunch of definitions, is he? He's not, he's not asking us to say, well, the, this word means this and that word means that, and you add them together and we get something. John is inviting us. He is an, he's an, it's an invitation to our imagination, isn't it? He wants us to smell and to see and to taste and to touch and to see colors and to hear thunder, you see. That's what God's word's like. It's living. It, 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 it does things in us. It, it enlivens us, you see. So, so, to, so don't be paralyzed by what we don't know 
Have you ever felt like that? Like, man, the Bible is just so big and there's so much to know and it's, I don't know the language and, oh, I don't know the history. and Like, I'm just so nervous about getting it wrong that it just it paralyzes you. Have you ever felt like that? I have. So scared of getting it wrong, like God's going to strike me or something. And God says, I, I've, you're in the room. I, I'm inviting you in the room. Pick a spot, sit down, and start exploring. Start scraping. You'll find gold. So don't be paralyzed by what we don't know, that we don't worship what we do know and can know. The great promise of chasing rabbits is that you eventually catch one. <laughs> so to, to use this image of the scale, if, if we're light on or we're lazy about sufficiency, we're going to overinterpret a text. We're going to start saying things that are in the Bible that aren't there. Okay, If we're lazy about that. We're trying to fill in what God left out. If, if we don't have a holy curiosity, if, if, we, if we don't explore a text and start scraping for gold, we might not get all the treasure that's available to us. We might stifle explanation. Or even worse, we just might hinder obedience, frankly. And the text becomes merely the the sum of its words or the sum of its definitions. Suddenly, biblical interpretation, it feels like a math problem more than... I'm sorry, I'm getting a little preachy here. I'm sorry. um, when when, When you and I sit over our Bibles... We're not coming to a a textbook to decipher. When you and I sit over our Bibles, we are coming to a person. And when you sit across from a person, you don't start trying to ask definitions about them, right? And add all those up and say, well, this must be who you are. We're, We're coming to the living God to know him and to love him and to follow him. And persons are more than the sum of their parts, right? So when God invites us into the room, he's inviting us into it's an invitation to meet with him. And he's unlocked, he unlocks every room. To, to the degree that we entrust ourselves to sovereign sufficiency and this holy curiosity, we will increase our joy in God's living word. That's why the other side of the scale is joylessness. Do you see it? The more we give ourselves to the sufficiency of God's word and this holy curiosity that I provocatively summarize as imagination, the more that that gets weighted down, the less joylessness we experience. The more, you know, or to say positively, the more joy we will have. That make sense? Well, I couldn't resist a couple of selections from J.I. Packer. Uh, he wrote a little book entitled God Has Spoken. I'm quoting from the 79 edition. I'm sure there's been however many new editions since then. Packer says, I'm all for Christians digging into their Bibles with expectations of enjoyment. That changes the perspective, doesn't it? It does. I need to hear that. Like, oh, man, i got to get over my Bible today and get something out of it. I, oh. Rather than, let me go meet, meet with a person Amen. with the expectation of enjoyment. And uh, th- this one uh, is just absolutely, th- this is for the IV drip bag. The joy of Bible study is not the fun 
of collecting esoteric tidbits about Gog and Magog, Tubal Cain and Methuselah, Bible numerics and the beast, and so on. Nor is it the pleasure intense for the tidy minded of analyzing our translated text into preachers' petty patterns with neatly numbered headings held together by at alliteration's artful aid. You see what Packer did there? <laughs> that whole sentence is alliteration, isn't it? Rather, it is the deep contentment that comes of communing with the living Lord into whose presence the Bible takes us, a joy which only his true disciples know. That's what I mean by sufficiency and holy curiosity. That's what I mean by God invites us, any text, he invites us into the room. There's nothing we need to, he's not hidden something to unlock that. So I want to get to a case study, but any questions, thoughts before getting there? One thing about holy curiosity to be careful of is being curious, being curious of what's in the text is one thing, but then being curious of what's not in the text can be dangerous. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I remember asking a teacher one time, I said, you know, have you, have you ever considered, I mean, what would the world be like had sin not entered the world between Cain and Abel? What if Cain hadn't gone with it, but Abel had, or vice versa? And, you know, I said, have you ever thought about what? And he says, no, never. Because it's not in the Scripture. And it's not the direction our curiosity should take us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amen. Yeah, amen. Yeah. Well, I want to offer a, a case study uh, somewhat, somewhat quickly. Someone read that. If, is that read enough? Can you read that? Uh, this is John nineteen twenty seven. Out loud. <laughs> They took Jesus, therefore, and went out bearing his own cross to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. Excellent. So, so we're in the room, right? We, we, if we have nothing else, we're in the room. And there is, we could spend the rest of our lives glorying already in the room, right? Were we to have nothing else to explore anything else. That, that verse conveys all that we could stand for sure. But what are some historical, cultural tidbits that you've heard about, about this verse? A little bit of a baiting question. Yeah. I've heard it along the way that um, place of the skull was where they buried skulls. And yep. For instance, like Goliath's head. Oh, it absolutely buried. stole my thunder. Sorry. No, that's okay. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We've heard things. It, it may yeah. not be the, the place that you get taken to on the tour. You're right. You go to Jerusalem. Right. Where there's a eroded rock face that looks yeah. like a skull yeah. where they say Jesus was. Yeah. But it's this other location. Right. Which yeah. maybe. Who knows? You know, our brothers brought up. So the place of a skull, because it looks like the rock formation, looks like a skull. <clears throat> that, okay. Maybe. 
Could be. Um, uh, the place of skull in, in Greek, it's cranium. So we get our, you know, our cranium words. Or in Latin, calvaria. If you uh, heard, did you hear those, uh, those secret videos of the Planned Parenthood stuff? I don't know, whatever, a year or two ago. And the, they kept bringing up, and this is, I don't know. They kept bringing up the word calvarium. That, that's the, the fancy doctor word, I guess, for skull. That's where we get it. That's where we get calvary. Okay, those are all interesting tidbits. But, but John is indicating something here more specifically. What does John say about that word or the place of a skull? In Hebrew. So to John, there's something Old Testament about how the Jews understood that place, correct? That's what he's saying, that we know... John's readers and the Greek audience and Greco-Roman people, they understood that place. And John says, but in Hebrew, we've always known that place to be Golgotha. Now we have a little bit of curiosity, right? Which our brother has already indicated. So I'm going to read 1 Samuel 17, 24. David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. He put Goliath's weapons in his tent. Excellent. Hmm. Can you piece it? In, in Hebrew, John's saying, we Jews have always known that place to be what? Golgotha. Golgotha. Right? Goliath of Gath. You see. Now, we're, we're already in the room, right? I, but would this provide maybe another, another seat in the room? To contemplate John nineteen twenty seven, would would the idea that well the Jews have always known that place to be Golgotha, whether or not the cross is situated on where David put Goliath, we know David took the head of the Philistine and put it in Jerusalem. Now whether the cross is put on that spot, who knows? I, I don't know that that's important. But the Jews always knew the day was going to come. We've always known this place to be Golgotha where our king dances on the grave of Goliath. Right? Our king, as it were, crushes the head. Amen. See. Does it give us Does it give us any secret? It gives us another seat to sit on in the room and to contemplate that. That makes sense? You see how Goliath is described in the text and he has like this armor that looks like scales you know so he's described like a serpent yeah so it kind of yeah. makes sense that yeah jesus crushes the yeah the that's right yeah it's, it's almost like john writes this and, and says uh wink wink you, you know wink wink we jews have always known this all along you see th- th- we've always looked forward to this day kind of thing um I got one more slide because the, the question that inevitably should come up now is what, how do I get my hands on anything that will help? <laughs> and Duval Hayes provide, if you have the book, you can look at uh, five, six pages of stuff. And rather than do that or give you a handout, uh, I'll just give you a link um, that maybe somebody can get to the gizmo on the app or somehow. But, um, but yeah. Um, yeah. I had to dumb that down for, you know, some of the... Thanks for yeah. I, I picked it up now that you got it right. There you go. That's right. That's right. <laughs> all things to all people. Uh, but uh, any, any questions or comments?
before dropping this link on you. Or corrections or rebuke. Oh, uh, you can scan this, or is it digital? Yeah. So, um, the, if you have to pick one of these, pick the big one on the left. That's Dr. Aiken. Uh, he had, uh, he was at Southern when I was at Southern 100 years ago, and he actually it was a, a real for real pamphlet then that he put out on building a theological library. Uh, he's since updated that. He's now at Southeastern in 2019. It's now digital, and you can find it. So, if you're like, I don't even know where to start. What do I need to get my hands on? What what's the first thing I need to get? Scan that, and you'll have more on there than you ever want. And you can put that on your bookstore wish list, whichever bookstore you use. Um, there's going to be more on there than you want. The other two are from the Denver Seminary. They sort of update this pretty regularly, Old Testament and New Testament. So it can be a, probably a little more technical stuff but, and maybe some overlap with Dr. Aikens. But if you're like, I just need, I need somebody to tell me where to go to get something, then scan that and just start. Pick, anything you pick on that will be fine. You'll find... Get your hands on a Bible encyclopedia, Bible dictionary, get yourself a Bible atlas. I can't recommend that enough. I mean, I, if I were you, the first thing you ought to buy is a Bible atlas. Um, and have it, I keep mine within arm's reach. Because I'm like, I'm reading these names in the Old Testament. I'm like, I don't even know what this is. Where in the world is this? Uh, some places have three different names for the same place. And you're like, are we talking about three different places? Where in the world are we talking about? So having a good Bible atlas always helps with that. Um, and various other resources that you'll find, commentaries included. Okay, and I, I guess that eventually gets to the website somehow. Um, if you miss that, all right. Any thoughts, questions at all before we close up shop? Um, can I? Say, I'll just say yeah. with the Denver Seminary links. Yeah. Um, there are authors that will be listed that do not believe the scripture is inerrant, you know, and things like that. So be, you Aiken's list, you don't have to be careful really about. But the other two, ask questions if you have them of people you know, that, you know that sort of thing. Because <coughs> there will be authors that do not uh, view the scripture the way that we do. Excellent. Thank you, brother. Anything at all? <laughs>